heart of our living. And Father, we pray that you will uh, help us to objectively look at our own lives, look in terms of our own beliefs, our own actions, our own thoughts, and that God the Holy Spirit would take the truths that we study this evening and use them to enable us to move forward in our spiritual life and to grow and to be sanctified, that we can live a life that is set apart to you. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. We continue our study in First Peter. We are shifting into a new section of the book today. Uh, if you remember when we went through the opening chapters in First Peter chapter 1, down through verse 12, we saw the opening introduction. And the theme of that introduction was such that it was focusing us on the long-term plan, not the short-term plan recognizing that in this life we're going to face fiery trials, we're going to face challenges, opposition, and that the only way to uh, get past that is through trusting in the Lord and applying that. We have um, verse 5, verse 6, verse 7 talking about faith and preparing us for that future revelation of Jesus Christ, which is his coming for us in the church age. That applies to the rapture of the church. Having introduced that as the major theme and the major framework for understanding the epistle, the first division of the epistle began in verse 13 of chapter 1 and extended down through chapter or through chapter 2, verse 10, where we stopped last time. And the focal point there was to deal with something that is sometimes misunderstood in the Christian life, and that is our conduct, how we conduct our lives, how we live our lives. And this has often raised a, uh, quite a challenge within churches that emphasize grace. That is one of the characteristics of the belief system, the doctrinal system we have at West Houston Bible Church and many other churches, emphasizing the grace of God. And we emphasize grace at salvation, that works are not necessary, uh, emphasis on morality or ethics or ritual or any external factor is just not relevant to your relationship with God. God saves us on the basis of his grace, which is defined as unmerited favor. We don't do anything to earn it or to deserve it. And then after we're saved, the spiritual life is still grace. Grace, grace. In fact, it's, it's interesting. It's sort of an example of how this gets muddied up in, um, among churches and among individuals is that even though the spiritual life is based on grace. We understand there are commands, there are mandates. In fact, there's 613 commands in the Mosaic Law, but there's more than that in the New Testament. So it doesn't mean that there's not commands or mandates or absolutes that we are supposed to follow in living our Christian life, but we have to fit that into this framework of grace. Lewis Berry Chafer, the founder of Dallas Theological Seminary, author of numerous books, plus his seven-volume systematic theology, really wanted grace to be the focal point, the fulcrum, the everything about Dallas Seminary when he founded it. Recently, I was reading a book on the history of Dallas Seminary, and in the introduction to the book, the writer had interviewed and talked with a few of the graduates who came out of Dallas Seminary in the, back in the 1930s. And what struck me was 
one of these men talking about what a relaxed atmosphere there was around Dallas Seminary in the 30s. He even went on to say something that I thought was interesting, that that Lewis, Lewis Chafer didn't even make as large of an emphasis on uh, what we might think of some aspects of the doctrinal statement, such as dispensationalism and the pre-tribulation rapture, because he had such a relaxed mental attitude that he believed that if you just taught the Word, that God would use his word to convince people and to change people and don't try to impose uh, some sort of rigid legalistic external standard on people, either in terms of their doctrine or in terms of their personal life. And so they didn't have a code of conduct at Dallas Seminary for students. Now, that was pretty standard at most most seminaries, and in a lot of seminaries, they were incredibly legalistic in Bible colleges as well. Uh, it was back at a time when uh, we have folks in this congregation who went to Bob Jones. Bob Jones is one of the most notorious for this, but there were others that, that had these kinds of standards, where if you went on a date, uh, not only could the boy and girl not hold hands, but there was a chaperone on the date. You couldn't go to movies at all. You could, and if you were in the dorm, you could only watch a few uh, television programs that were acceptable. And in some schools, especially in the 50s and early 60s, you couldn't even watch TV. And, of course, anything like drinking alcohol or partaking of tobacco products or anything like that was completely and totally forbidden. But apparently that wasn't true at Dallas Seminary. They had this grace mentality. And there's the story. You've probably heard me tell it before. I don't know if it's apocryphal or not, but it makes a point. And that is that one of the early graduates of Dallas Seminary was a, was a uh, you, when you hear him on the radio, he has an interesting accent. You go, where in the world did he get that accent? And he got it because he grew up in Waxahachie, Texas. And uh, his name was J. Vernon McGee. And after he graduated from Dallas for many, many years, he was the pastor of the Church of the Open Door in Los Angeles. But the story is that he started off at a seminary. I believe it was a Presbyterian. I won't name it in case I'm wrong, uh, in, Vir- in Virginia. And he, he didn't like the fact that they weren't dispensational. He didn't like the fact that they were very legalistic. So he decided that after he heard of this new school in Dallas, and, of course, being from Waxahachie, he was only about 40 or 50 miles south of Dallas, he decided to go up there and to find out if they were grace-oriented or legalistic. So he got the biggest, blackest, smokiest cigar he could find, and walked into Davidson Hall. There were only two buildings at Dallas campus at the time, and walked in there smoking this this uh, nasty old stogie to see if uh, they would make an issue out of that. Well, he eventually got not only his master's degree and his doctorate from Dallas Seminary, so apparently they didn't make an issue out of it. And that, you know, I always had heard that story, but after reading this uh, comment by a 1930s graduate, I could see that 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 was true. That was Chafer's mentality. But you see, the problem that we have in among Christians is that we always want to impose some standard on people. I believe that in my life I need to do X, Y, and Z, or I can't really grow as a Christian. And that may be true, but I don't have any basis for saying that, that I need to impose these standards 
on you, my standards on you, because you've got different areas of weakness, you've got different problems and different challenges in your life. So that's where legalism enters in, where people start setting this up. And in 1952, Dr. Chafer died, and he was replaced by John Walvert, who was one of his protégés, had been administrator uh, at the school for many years, taught theology. If you read, read Walvert a lot, he sounds a lot like Chafer. You can tell how influenced he was. But there was another influence in Dr. Walvert's life. There was an influence of worldliness in the concept of legalism. And it came from one of the most important people in his life, his mother. His mother was a temperance marcher back in the uh, period around World War I. And so she drilled that into him that you can't have alcohol. You can't let the devil's alcohol uh, touch your lips if you're a Christian. And so when Dr. Walvoord became president, grace slipped. And he uh, put together, and the Dallas Seminary adopted, a code of conduct for students, which was still in effect until recently. Now, it was an interestingly worded document, but it was basically saying that as future Christian leaders, that uh, all students were expected to comport themselves as Christian leaders, and that would not include partaking in alcoholic beverages or tobacco products. And I just found out the other day that that's no longer uh, true at at Dallas Seminary. They finally modified that. they, it was already true de facto for about 35 years, but they, they actually changed it uh, just a few years ago. But anyway, that, that's an illustration of this problem that has plagued Christians since the early church, is what do you do with sin in the Christian life? And so there's this, this emphasis that you just have to come down hard on it, and sometimes maybe you do. But you can't do it at the expense of grace. So we have an emphasis on grace and salvation. We have a grace emphasis on grace in the spiritual life. We have an emphasis on, on grace and dealing with people and their failures. There's not one person here who hasn't blown it spiritually in some huge ways. Maybe not in terms of overt sin, but maybe in terms of mental attitude sin, maybe in terms of sins of the tongue. Uh, there are a lot of Christians who may not have committed one of the five or six uh, worst sins that they think of, but then they're always gossiping, or they're judging people, or they think they're they're better than everybody else. That, that you hear people who say, "Well, well, I've never sinned." Well, <laughs> I had one volunteer. Uh, you never sin, so. But that's because they only have three things on their sin list. And as long as you don't do those three things, you're in pretty good shape. So this is a, this has always been a problem. Uh, but we believe in grace, and there's forgiveness in sin. And we have to understand, though, how we balance that with what the Scripture teaches. And this has been a problem, and uh, the problem of, of the other extreme of licentiousness has been there since the beginning of the church. And these are the two poles, either legalism on the one hand or licentiousness. And licentiousness is the idea that, well, Jesus died for all my sins. He paid for all my sins. So what the, hey, I'm just going to keep living in sin. Well, Paul addressed that in uh, Romans 6, 1 and 2. And so we have to deal with this issue 
uh, in this chapter because the command here is to abstain from sin. Now, Peter doesn't mean that in an absolute sense because Peter knows that we're all sinners. But in an experiential sense, in terms of the spiritual life, that's the command. So is this legalism or grace? Well, obviously, it's the Word of God, so it can't be legalism. Now, Paul dealt with the licentious aspect in a couple of places. In Romans chapter 6, verse 1, after he has expounded on the on justification by faith and on reconciliation and on how Christ and his work on the cross provided reconciliation and dealt with sin, he faces head on the question that people would ask. And that is, well, if it's sins paid for, well, let's just keep on sinning. If, if we sin this much and we got grace, let's sin some more and we'll get some more grace. So Paul says, what shall we say then? A rhetorical question to focus on the issue. Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? And if you talk to a lot of Christians, especially today, I, I hear it's a major problem in, <coughs> excuse me, I hear it's as major a problem today as ever, but especially among millennials, that they just don't want to think that many, many things are sin. And, and part of that problem is we have a, we don't have a high view of sin. We have a low view of sin. We, we, we're, we're defining sin in the wrong ways. And that's something we're going to have to address as I go through this is how do we define sin? Because what happens in every generation in American church history is that sin gets defined in terms of certain social evils, certain social unacceptable evils. So today, sin is often defined in terms of political correctness. If you're not politically correct, or you say something that's not politically correct, or you don't act politically correct, or you don't vote in a politically correct manner, then you are sinning. If you don't hold to social justice, this has become embedded in the thinking of millennials. If you don't have this concept of social justice, then you're evil. And they don't realize that the whole concept of social justice is itself evil. Because this is what happens is that when people don't know the Word of God and they don't define sin the way God defines sin, then everything gets turned topsy-turvy inside and out and backwards. And we call, as the prophets in Israel said, you begin to call evil good and good evil because you have to let the Word of God define itself. So this was a, has always been a problem. There's nothing new under the sun. It may get new labels. It may... Uh, freshen up the clothes a little bit, and it may dress itself up a little differently, but it's still the same old problem. So you had these uh, folks uh, at the t first century who thought, wow, if Christ died for my sins and we got grace, let's just keep sinning, we'll get more grace. And Paul uses a phrase in the Greek that's translated certainly not, but it's much stronger in the Greek, and it, it, it's 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 translated. We might colloquially translate it as "hell no," but it's pretty close to that. It's it's not at all. Never. Don't even think it. And he said, "How shall we who died to sin?" Now that's a crucial issue to understand in terms of our spiritual life. How shall we who died to sin live in it? And this is the struggle that especially grace-oriented Christians have is, well, we know we're going to sin. Sometimes we think of it as just sort of like uh, some people describe confession as rebound. We're bouncing back from, from carnality. But other people say, well, I know I'm going to sin. I'll just do it, 
confess it ahead of time. So we call that pre-bound. Don't laugh. I know almost everybody here has thought that at some point or another. Anyhow, so we have to understand that there is this distinction made between being obedient to the Word and dealing personally with the sin in our own life, not your wife's sin, not your husband's sin. You can deal with your sin, your kid's sin because that's your role as a parent, maybe as a grandparent, but not your neighbor's sin. You know, we've got enough trouble on our own. So we have to learn to deal with it without slipping over the edge into some sort of legalism. Now, the, the, the sort of a facetious answer to that that I heard from the wife of one pastor some years ago who said, well, seems like a little legalism really wouldn't hurt. And there may be a little truth to that if you're dealing with a lot of licentious people, but uh, that's not what the uh, Scripture says. Now, another problem that comes along, we're going to talk a little bit about Galatians as well as we look at this passage in First Peter. When we come to Galatians 5.13, after Paul has laid his groundwork for answering the question that he brought up in Galatians chapter 3, verse 3, he doesn't come back to the answer until he gets to Galatians 5.16. But as he ends his setup for the answer, he says, For you, brethren, have been called to liberty. Only do not use liberty as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. He's dealing with that legalism problem again. Don't let the liberty, the freedom you have in Christ give you a rationale to say, well, it won't really matter. I'll just commit this little sin or that little sin, and I'll do that or this and somehow get away with it. Uh, he says, don't use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh but through love serve one another. So it's going to come down to this this important issue. We're going to address it Sunday morning about what it means to love one another. As Jesus outlines it in Matthew 22, that's the second great commandment. So what we have is, is this issue of licentiousness. Now, a long time ago I read, a, read an author who said, who's was talking about grace, wrote a whole book on grace. It was pretty good. And in there he said, one of the problems that we'll see when you're teaching grace, when you're teaching people that Christ paid for sins, when you're teaching people that they can't pay for their sin, when you're teaching people that they have genuine, full, true forgiveness of their sin, and that if they confess sin, no matter how horrible it is, that God instantly forgives them and cleanses them of sin. If you teach that, people are going to take advantage of God's grace. And then he said, and if you don't have people in your congregation taking advantage of God's grace, then you're probably not teaching grace. Now think about that. That's a pretty profound observation. If you think about it, if you have experience as a parent or as a child, which covers just about everybody here, you know there was a point in time in your life when your parents began to give you a little more freedom and a little more responsibility. And then there came that time when parents say, well, I have to go somewhere tonight, and we're going to leave you at home alone. Boy, what a test that would be today. Leave you at home alone, and whether or not you have 
learned what we've taught you to be responsible and not abuse your freedom. And if I had a show of hands, I would say that maybe not the first time, but sooner or later, all of us abused and took advantage of that freedom at some point when we were growing up. That is, that's how we learn. That is how people grow up. And sometimes you you get some people, once they got to that point where they tasted a little freedom, they abused it for until they were through their adolescent years and through their 20s and through their 30s and somewhere around their 50s, they began to wake up and realize that they needed to to um, uh, to get control again. And that's what happens with a lot of people in their spiritual life. They get so focused on the fact that I'm saved, I can live like I want to, and their life doesn't reflect any difference with anybody else uh, around them. And one of the things that we ought to recognize is the expectation in Scripture is that if you are a Christian, no matter where you are, whether you're at work, whether you're at play, whether you're with your friends, whether you're with uh, uh, colleagues at work, no matter what, are, are in the political environment, the way you live is going to distinctively set you apart from everybody else. Now, back in the 30s and 40s and 50s, when there were a lot of people who were Christians or so-called Christians and they were loaded with legalism, that wasn't that much of a problem because they were li- they had confused moral obe- a moral life and an ethical life with a spiritual life. It's not that Christians are un- immoral or unethical, but spirituality is a hi- is higher than morality. Any unbeliever can be moral or ethical. But Christians do it through the power of the Holy Spirit, which takes it to a different level. So we'd have to deal with this issue of of licentiousness and understanding uh, the spiritual life. Now, as we look at this passage, what Paul says is don't use liberty as an opportunity for the flesh. Now, this is another question we need to ask is what is the flesh? Because this is a term that is used in most of these passages that we're going to look at, whether it's in Galatians 5, uh, 16 to 18, or whether it's in Romans 6 or Romans 8 or 1 Peter 2. What is the term flesh? And the word is used, it's the, the Greek word is sarx, S-A-R-X, and it's used literally to describe the flesh of any living creature, what their material body is made of. It's also used to refer to the physical human body, and it's refer, used in context to refer to the material body in contrast, contrast to the immaterial nature. It has a wide range of meanings. That's the point. And remember, if it's used to contrast the material body to the immaterial nature, what's the word that's used to describe the immaterial nature? It's the word spirit. Numa, and we've studied that word before in the past, and there's a lot of different meanings to that word. So you have to look at each verse in its context to determine meaning. But the one that that is significant for our study is that it's used to refer to the weakness or the sinfulness of man. It's used sometimes to think that the, the flesh is weak in that sense. There's a spiritual inability there. Uh, it refers to the sinfulness of man, the capacity to sin. Now, we use the word sin nature, and it may that's a comfortable word for me. It's a comfortable for word for you. You've heard that word many, many times. 
But you'd be surprised at how seminary students can get all wrapped around the axle over that word nature. And I have read ad nauseum papers on why that's not the right word. But one meaning of the word nature is just the capacity to do something. And that's what the sin nature is, our inherent capacity to disobey God, to sin. And it involves all the sinful passions and affections and all the different operations. It is... Um, uh, there's another word that is used with it that's either in an adjectival or or an adverbial form, and that's the word fleshly or fleshy, and it depends on the ending in the Greek, but basically it's the form sarkikos. You take the root sarks and you add an ending to it, and it relates to something that pertains to the flesh. In other words, something that pertains to the sin nature and the desires and the lust patterns of the sin nature. So that's what we're going to deal with, because what Paul is saying here is we have to abstain from fleshly lusts. I'm not going to ask for a show of hands as to how how uh, successful anybody has been over that. So in conclusion, the Scripture uses the word flesh to describe the sinful capacity, the corruption which sin has brought upon the human race and all the desires, thoughts, actions, and trends which orient each of us away from God and his perfect righteousness. To understand sin, we have to understand that Scripture contrasts sin with God's character. It's not contrasting our character with other people's character. It's always a contrast with God's character, his perfect righteousness and his holiness. I don't like to use the word holiness because that's that's such an overused word and a word that just doesn't resonate with a lot of meaning for most people. And holiness really has the idea of being set apart or distinct. And what distinguishes God from all of his creatures is his absolute justice and absolute righteousness which no creature has, even when he created the angels with uh, righteousness, he created man in the image of God with righteousness. It's a derivative righteousness. It's not an absolute righteousness. So that God's character becomes the standard against which any other behavior is measured. So the issue isn't how how good you do, you know, in comparison to your brother, or your sister, or your parents, or your next door neighbor, or your best friend. It's our behavior in contrast to what is expected of us uh, from God. And so the flesh or the sin nature always relates to to something that violates the character of God. Uh, I did something interesting this afternoon because part of what I want to do is in the next couple of weeks is just sort of give a summary overview of uh, the what the Bible teaches about sin. And the technical term for that is homardiology because the Greek word for sin is homardios. So homardiology is the theology, that branch of systematic theology, which deals with sin. And it's really a subcategory of biblical anthropology or what makes up man. How do we understand a human being? And anthropology, if you think about it in the secular world, is the study of human beings and a subset of of, um, secular anthropology is psychology, what makes human beings tick. Now, when you look at secular psychology, it's all based on empiricism. And when you look at 
what the Bible says, it's based on how God made human beings and how God defines the basic problems. Now, there was an interesting article that was sent to me yesterday morning um, that came out uh, a couple of days ago in American Thinker. Some of you read some of the articles in American Thinker on, on the Internet. And the, the um, title of this article was The Death of Evangelicalism. And it was written by somebody, and I could tell by the way he wrote it and some of the references he made that he graduated from seminary not too long after I graduated from seminary because he talked about the fact that, that the seminary that he had graduated from in the early 80s made these terrible shifts. And that was typical of all the, you can name any seminary that was a major evangelical seminary in the 1970s, and they all were making these shifts in the late 70s and late 80s. And the first thing he mentioned as the shift that that did them in was when they threw out the Bible alone as the basis for counseling and understanding human behavior and uh, assimilated uh, humanistic psychology into their systems. And today, I have been crucified in previous congregations because of my stand for the Bible alone in the area of psychology, because the, the most churches have already have so compromised on this area that back in the 80s, uh, I, I remember battles that Tommy Ice and I fought around Dallas Seminary, even in the 70s. You know, it was like we were we were back-to-back -back battle buddies and everybody else was against us. And I've seen a few churches along the way where the pastors have succumbed and have said, you know, it's okay to go to Christian counseling and psychotherapy. And it's always been disastrous because it destroys the authority of the Word of God in people's lives. And that was the first thing that this author pointed out is what led to now about a 35 to 40-year uh, long, slow commitment of suicide by the evangelical church. And so today it is a wreck Evangelicalism is almost a meaningless term because most churches that are evangelical Bible churches, um, evangelical, no-name, generic, uh, temple of whatever, cathedral of whatever, or just some generic name based on what part of town they're in, um, these are churches that have lost their focus on what the Christian life is all about. And they think that the way that you can get there is through, well, I go to Bible study and I go to these little small groups, but, you know, what really helps is is the prescription medication I take. Now, there are cases when people need to have certain prescription medication, but there's a lot of people. I mean, there's a huge problem with the over-medication of our culture because if people just have the blues, they want to get some kind of antidepressant. And these drugs change the way your brain works. And so what happens is we start having a little downer in our life, and there's a little problem, there's a little adversity. Rather than learning how to walk through it by the Holy Spirit, we want to go get a little uh, pharmaceutical help. And I've even heard one person who said, you know, it's great to walk by the Spirit, but it wasn't until I got drugs that I could really have a handle on this. The blasphemous implications of that are phenomenal, but they, are, they just go right past a, a huge number of people. So, 
we look at this problem of the sin nature. Now, what, is, what does Peter say here? As we get into this section, we're shifting gears from the section from 1, uh, what was that, 113 down through 210, and we know that he's shifting gears because he inserts this first word, beloved, but he says, beloved, I beg you as sojourners and pilgrims. So he's shifting to what he says from this point on has very little to do with what he just completed related to the priesthood of the believer, but it grows out of that. He says, I beg you, as sojourners and pilgrims, abstain from, filthy, uh, from fleshly lusts, which war against the soul, having your conduct honorable among the Gentiles, that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may by your good works which they observe. Peter is so practical. He says what, what's going to make a difference is how people see the way you live. They're watching you. And I had somebody, a friend of mine, one of the men involved in starting this church, tell me at one time, because we had numerous friends who were in the Jewish community, and he said, he told me, he said, Robbie, they watch you and me all the time. Just because nobody says it doesn't mean they're not watching you as a believer. They know, if they know you're a Christian, they're watching you. They're looking to see if the way you live matches what you believe, if it really does make a difference to be a Christian or if it's just some hobby, just something you do. They go do something else on Sunday morning. They sleep late and they read the paper. They watch the morning news shows. You go to church. Uh, as far as they're concerned, really doesn't seem to make a difference in the lives of most Christians. But Peter says that that this our conduct should make a difference. They can observe the good works, and the result is that God is glorified in the day of visitation. Now that mean that doesn't mean God is glorified today. The day of visitation is another way Peter has of talking about the judgment seat of Christ. When Christ returns, we're raptured, resurrected, the dead in Christ rise first. We who are alive and remain will be caught up together with him in the clouds. And then what happens? The Bema seat, the judgment seat of Christ. And when there are rewards, God is glorified for the believer's life who walks by the Spirit and grows to spiritual maturity. Now, as we look at this one sentence, this one sentence, two-verse paragraph, I want you to notice that a couple of things here. He says, uh, the, first, the main idea in verse 11 is, I beg you, I challenge you, I exhort you. As we'll look at that word in just a minute. It's a strong word. It's translated a lot of places in the New King James Version as I beseech you, another word that's kind of lost as it resonates with the, um, with the old, King, old um, Elizabethan English. I beg you as sojourners and prince, uh, and excuse me, the, the main thought is I beg you abstain from fleshly lusts. He starts with the negative and then he shifts to the positive by having your conduct honorable among the Gentiles. So it's a focus ultimately on the positive. He says you abstain how? By having honorable conduct. Well, then how do we have this honorable conduct? Well, you have to study the Word and learn how to walk by the, by the Spirit. So he starts negatively by saying abstain from fleshly lusts, and then positively by saying have a what he means when he talks about uh, uh, 
your, having your conduct honorable, the idea there is that it's a noble and morally good life. It is an ethically sound life because you're walking by the Spirit. You know it's you and I know it's more than morality, but to the unbeliever, he just looks at us and says they're they're morally sound. They are they live an honorable life. You can count on their word. You can believe them when they say they're going to do something. They're going to be uh, responsible in whatever uh, tasks are ever are assigned to them. There's a difference in them. I can trust them where I can't always trust anyone else. And the word that is used for that is a word up on the screen. It's anastrophe, which means a way of life, a lifestyle, or a manner of life. Now, this isn't the first time we've seen this word. And this shows that the connection between these this sentence, these two verses, and what was a major theme in 113 down to 210. Because this word shows up either uh, uh, as a noun in verse 15, 115 and 118 or as the verb form in 117. So in that previous section, this idea that it's our conduct, it's our way of life that needs to be transformed, he's not saying it's you, you do it externally. Peter clearly understands it's from the inside out, just as Paul says in, in Romans uh, 12, 1 and 2, that we're to be transformed by the renewing of our mind. But the transformation is not only internal, but it's external in terms of our conduct and our lifestyle. He says, but as he who called you is holy, that was what we studied in one fifteen. as he who called you is distinct and unique and set apart from all of his creatures, you also be holy, be set apart to God in all of your behavior, in all of your conduct, in the way you live your life and conduct your business. And First Peter one seventeen says, If you call on the Father, that is in prayer, who without partiality judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves. That's living the life. That's the verb form. Live your life throughout the time of your stay here on this earth. In fear, that is respect for God that changes the way we live and think on a day-to-day basis. And then First Peter one eighteen, you have the negative where Peter is talking about redemption, that we were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct. That's what characterizes the unbeliever, a, a non-focused, non-biblical, non-moral way of life. So contra- there's a contrast there from... 113 down through uh, 210, and he even brings this out again in a little different way in two, chapter 2, verse 1, when he talks about laying aside all malice. Now, as I talked about it there, that's not some sort of moral pull-yourself-up-from-your-bootstraps kind of uh, uh, spiritual life where you just quit doing certain things. It has to be done in the power of the Holy Spirit. We know that from other passages, which we'll look at in this study. But it is it has to start by just confessing sin. We strip it off that way when we confess sin. Because you can't say, well, we can't. If, if verse 1 precedes the command to desire the milk of the word, then uh, the way most people tra- take verse 1 is you have to quit committing sin before you can start studying the word. And that's just nonsense. They haven't thought it through very well. You can't say it. So it has to be the same idea that we talk about with confession. You strip off the dirty garments. You remove them by confessing sin. We're cleansed. 
Now, sooner or later, we're going to start sinning again. We're going to have to confess again and get rid of those dirty garments. But you have to do that. You have to strip off that, be cleansed before you can go forward. So in verse 11, what I want to do is break this down in terms of the language of the text and what is being said, and then start here to develop both a a good sense of what the Bible teaches about sin and our martyology and what that means for the spiritual life. So we'll just barely get started this evening. Starts off with the word beloved. Interesting word from the uh, noun agape, which means love. And you add on a suffix, agapetas, which means someone who is loved, or in English, that is beloved. And this is a word that is used a number of times in the scriptures through the authors. Paul uses it, Peter uses it, James uses it, John loves it. Uh, that's That's how they address their recipients. Now, what do they mean? A lot of us, when we read this, we're thinking this is personal because Paul will use it in a personal way to refer to Epaphroditus as my beloved or you Philippians are my beloved. And it's personal that way when it has that first person pronoun in front of it. But when it's used as a standalone noun, it's not talking about the author's love for his recipients. It doesn't mean he doesn't love them, but that's not the emphasis. Where we see it, the first time we see it used in an epistle is in Romans, which comes, uh, even though it was written later by Paul, it's the first one in the way we organize the English Bible. And he writes to them and he says, to all who are in Rome, beloved of God. So when we see this word stand alone in the scripture, the emphasis isn't on the writer's love for the people he's writing, but he's writing them because they are fellow recipients of the love of God. They have experienced that in their salvation, and they are beloved positionally because they are now in God's family, and they are Uh, part of God's royal family. They've been adopted into uh, the royal family of God. So they are beloved. It's used a number of places. I pointed out Romans 1, 7 gives us a sort of a definition and understanding of why they're beloved. Romans 12, 19, Paul says beloved, and then he goes on to tell them what they should not do in terms of their their behavior. Uh, It's used... um, As I pointed out, it's used by Paul, Peter, James, and John uh, a number of times. Uh, Philippians 4.1, Paul uses it to refer to the Philippians, my beloved and longed-for brethren. It's a much more personal use in that that verse. And in James 1.16, three times in James, James refers to them as my beloved brethren. Several other times, he refers to them as my brethren. But when he, you know that he's, he's using this term, my brethren and my beloved brethren, he's talking to them as believers. So many people get screwed up in their interpretation of James because they don't understand James is not writing to help them understand whether or not they're saved. James is writing to them because they are saved, 
and they and he knows they're saved and he's telling them how they should live the spiritual life james is not a book of proverbs about how to be a wise how to live wise in wisely in the church age it is about how church age believers are to are to exploit their new position as those who are beloved in christ so this word is used three times in james five chapters used three times um, it's used seven times in First and Second Peter. So Peter is fond of it. This is the first time it's used in First Peter, but in the five chapters of First Peter and three chapters of Second Peter, it's used seven times. Uh, in John's epistles, in First John, Second John, and Third John. Now there's five chapters in First John, one in Second John, one in Third John. He uses beloved six times when he's addressing his recipients. Second John he doesn't mention at all, and then he uses it three times in Third John for a total of nine. So this is a a standard word that is used by all of the apostles to address the body of Christ that they are beloved of God. And what we need to think about is in terms of the impact of this on our thinking, that when you look at any given congregation, uh, not like our congregation, we don't have a lot of problems in our congregation, but you look at somebody else's congregation, and they have people that have all kinds of problems. They have people who are involved in various kinds of sin. They have people who are falling apart in their personal life. They have people who are who are uh, not, they're not just pushing the panic button they're jumping up and down on top of the panic button whenever anything goes wrong all kinds of problems and some of these people aren't very nice we all know Christians that we really would rather not spend any time around for some reason we just don't like them but what we learn from this is positionally we are all beloved and why is that because God loves all believers for two reasons, and we should imitate that. Reason number one is because every believer is made in the image of God. And because we are all image bearers, we are to love one another. And second, because we're all adopted into God's royal family. So it's, it's not this idea, well, I shouldn't love you, but it depends on what you mean by that. We have to define the word love. Love doesn't mean that we're going to feel a certain way about them or we're going to uh, really like and enjoy their company, but we're going to treat them with honor and respect and good manners. We're not going to run them down. We're not going to slander them or gossip about them. And we know that... Uh, that every believer is growing at whatever pace they're growing, and we have to treat them in grace. Now, that's going to come across in a lot of ways as just good manners. But we're going to go the extra mile, as we'll see on Sunday morning, in order to be good to them and kind and generous to them. That's what, that's what impersonal love means. doesn't mean we have to personally uh, feel as warm and affectionate about every believer as we do uh, some of our close friends. So Paul, uh, Peter goes on to say, Beloved, I beg you. Now, I don't really like the, the way that's translated because that makes Peter look like he's just down on his hands and knees imploring them to do something they don't want to do. Uh, the word here is the word transla- that's uh, on the right, parakaleo. It is the verb form of the noun paraclete, 
which is used of God the Holy Spirit, that he is our comforter, our uh, helper, our, uh, the one who challenges us in the, uh, in the spiritual life. And it, so it has this meaning of urging someone to do something, exhorting them to do something, challenging them to do something. One of the great speeches that I ever heard that is an exhortation was that speech at the opening of Patton given by George C. Scott. That is an exhortation to go forth and kill the enemy and to understand how it's going to impact the thinking and uh, of the soldier. You know, he talks about what happens when, when their best friend is killed and how that's going to make them feel. You know, we're going to go through life with a lot of problems, but in a, in a combat, we have to focus on doing the right thing, doing, carrying out our training, and that's part of the Christian life. That's an exhortation. It's a challenge to do the right thing, no matter how difficult it is. So, Paul uses this term in Romans 12.1, and it's translated beseech in 12.1 and 4.1. It's, it's, I challenge you, brethren, I urge you to do something. It's a strong word to challenge people to behave a certain way, to change, maybe in some case, many cases, to change the way they think and the way they live. Romans 12.1, he says, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice. That's We studied that in the previous 10 verses, that we are priests of God, and the sacrifice that we offer is our life that will serve God, which is the idea of a sacrifice, not necessarily giving something up to the point that it hurts, but serving God with offering our lives in his service, holy, acceptable to God, which is your logical service. Ephesians 4, one he says, I therefore the prisoner of the Lord beseech you, urge you, I challenge you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called. And then he uses it to with two ladies who are having a bit of a problem in the Philippian congregation that's affecting the whole congregation. Let me tell you, when you're dealing with this, these were small congregations, they weren't mega churches. They were relatively small congregations, probably maybe smaller than our congregation, certainly not a whole lot bigger, and everybody knew each other. And they all lived in relatively small towns when you compare the size of Ephesus or or Philippi or any of those towns with with Houston. They certainly weren't as large as she probably about the size of Tomball, maybe even that, not that big. And so everybody knew each other, and when these two women... um, got crossways with each other, it impacted the whole congregation. And we may sin alone, but that doesn't mean that the sin only affects us. It may affect a number of other people. And our sin may only be against God, but that doesn't mean it doesn't impact other people. So he says, I implore or I urge, I exhort you, you, Euodia and Syntyche, to be of the same mind in the Lord. In other words, grow up, learn to agree with each other and learn to work with each other and do what's right before the Lord and get your focus off of yourself. And that's always the problem with the sin nature. The next two words that that Peter uses need to be understood together. They're sojourners and pilgrims. And these are words that that once again would resonate more with a Jewish background believer than with a Gentile. Because the, the, the way these words are used, the, the word translated sojourners 
is the word part oikos. Oikos has to do with where you live. It's a house, a dwelling. So it has to do with somebody who's living or dwelling in a strange place. Uh, maybe if you moved from Texas to California, you would think of yourself as a real sojourner because you'll be living in a really strange place. Um, a pilgrim, paripedidimus. Uh, this is a word that was often used uh, in conjunction with those who were in the diaspora, the Jews who were scattered. So these terms were applied to Jewish background believers who were scattered throughout the Roman Empire, but it also applied to any believer because we are not living in our Father's home. We are living in this earth as ambassadors for Christ, and we are we have a different uh, different mission. And so we are often strangers in a very, very strange world uh, because we're carrying out the mission that the Lord has given us. The word stranger is used in Acts 7, 6, and 29 to talk about uh, Abraham who dwelt in a foreign land when he moved from Ur of the Chaldees to, uh, to uh, the land that God promised. Then Acts seven twenty nine Moses, when he left Egypt, which was his home country and his hometown, went to the land of Midian. He was dwelling in a strange place. And we're com- Gentiles are compared to that in Ephesians two nineteen. They were before the cross strangers to the covenants of God. The word pilgrims also uh, I think that's an unfortunate translation today because when you say the word pilgrim to anybody probably over forty, they think of somebody who's wearing black with white collars and they came over on the Mayflower and landed in in uh, in Boston or near Boston. But um, if you're under 40, you probably don't know what they, those people were either. You just think it had something to do with Thanksgiving. But the definition of a pilgrim is someone who journeys to a sacred place or a religious location for religious or spiritual reasons. And so it's it's related to uh, the Old Testament uh the Old Testament saints, and that they understood that they were looking for a city set on a hill. They were looking for the ultimate provision and promise of God in terms of providing a kingdom. Uh, It's used by Peter to relate to the diaspora, that the Jews in the diaspora were pilgrims, and then it's applied here. So again, this is a word that resonates with that Jewish background. And then we get to the main command, which is an extension of the word. The way it's an infinitive, it's a middle infinitive, and I bring that out. A lot of times, I, I don't talk about the uh, voice, but in this case, it's it's important because in a present active voice, the word has a different meaning. But in the middle voice, it has that idea of avoiding any contact with something, avoiding something completely, not engaging in it, keeping away from it, refraining from it, or abstaining from it. So it means don't do it. That's what he's saying. He's completing his thought. It has an imperatival sense that he's, he's urging them not to do something. Stay away from it. Don't, it. don't yield to the fleshly lusts which war against your, your soul. And it's used that way in a couple of interesting passages. In Acts fifteen twenty and 29, uh, this is the end of the Jerusalem Council. We'll talk about that. You'll learn some new things about the Jerusalem Council that I've learned recently. 
But as they're writing to Gentiles, remember the problem with the Jerusalem Council was they were dealing with the Judaizers who were all upset because Gentiles were being treated as equal partners in the, in the church. And so the apostles got together, said, how do we handle it? And they came to a great solution. They said, but the one thing we want them to do is to abstain from things polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, and from things strangled and from blood. Uh, So that's not legalism. You know, that's not saying don't watch TV, don't go to movies, don't drink, don't dance, don't chew, and don't go with girls that do. It's All of this is embedded within an understanding of, first, absolutes, don't get involved in idolatry, don't get involved in sexual immorality, and things strangled in blood. That was also part of ritual in terms of worship of idols. So they were to abstain from those things. In First Thessalonians 4, 3, this is the will of God, your spiritual life, your sanctification, that you should abstain from sexual immorality. And then in First Thessalonians 5, 22, uh, Paul says, abstain from every kind of evil. So this isn't legalism. It is spiritual, spiritually responsible living. Now, it can be legalism if you think that by not doing certain things, somehow that makes you, uh, that impresses God and makes you more savable or makes you greater than any other Christian. You can easily turn the mandates of Scripture into legalism, but just following the mandates of Scripture isn't legalism. It is responsible uh, Christian living. Now, what I want to do next time when we come back is dig down into this a little bit later because we're to abstain from these fleshly lusts, and we have to come to understand what that is and what this warfare is that we're engaged in day in and day out as part of our spiritual life. We are to abstain from spiritual lust. Father, thank you for this opportunity, uh, or abstain from sinful lust. Father, thank you for this opportunity to study these things and to reflect upon your word to be reminded that there are standards in the Christian life, even though we're saved by grace and we're part of your family, there are standards of behavior for the royal family of God. There's a protocol to follow, and this is part of that protocol. Father, help us to reflect upon our own life, our own living, our own thinking, that we can understand what your standards are, that we may live in a way that will bring glory to you at the judgment seat of Christ. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.